Hey there. Yes, the voice is still not quite back. My lungs are doing their damnedest to keep me silent, wisely probably, but here I am managing to do another podcast this week, which I really wanted to do. Thanks for all the feedback about last week's dis- discussion of what's going on on the far right and what the thought is behind it. This week, we're also going to have a critique of liberal modernity in a different way. Louise Perry is a writer and longtime campaigner against sexual violence. And this year, she co-founded a nonpartisan feminist think tank called The Other Half, where she serves as research director. Her first book, just out, is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. Louise, thank you so much for coming on the Dishcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And you're English, right? Obviously. I'm English, yeah, yeah. Although the <laughs> book is out here just as prominently is in the UK. Tell me, where did you grow up in England and, and what was your background like? So I'm, my parents are Australian, actually. So I'm, I'm sometimes told I have a very slight Australian accent, though. That's a controversial point among Australian relatives. But I was born here in London and have lived in London pretty much my whole life. And... I mean, I think my background is being very boring, but I suppose it, I suppose everyone thinks that because it's normalised to them. So I come from a, a you know a happy, stable middle class upbringing. My father's a lawyer, my mother's an academic. So the point of my biography that is probably most becomes most pertinent to the book is I did anthropology and women's studies at university, and then after I left, I worked at a rape crisis centre as a support worker. Tell me what for teenage girls when you studied women's studies. What did you start? What were you taught? What was presumably this was the the Bible that that you were taught? Tell me what the because ba- I've never took women's studies. Tell me what 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 basically is is the gist of that curriculum? Well, it does vary between universities. I went to I did it at Oxford, which at the time was one of the few departments still calling itself a women's studies department. Basically, all of them have transitioned to be gender studies or gender and sexuality studies. I think Oxford has since changed its name, which is sad. It was kind of evident in the core curriculum, though, in that there was very little, there was a really surprising little second wave. We sort of skipped from Simone de Beauvoir to Judith Butler and then more Judith Butler and then more Judith Butler. So it was very kind of... Judith Butler, extraordinarily influential person, whom I have diligently attempted to read and understand on many different occasions. <laughs> Tell me about Haven't we all? <laughs> what what is it about the work of Judith Butler? What do you think is its most potent appeal? Ah, oh, why is it so successful? I mean the obscurantist prose is part of the appeal. It really is. Because it does give that impression to to anxious undergraduates that there must be something profound buried within these texts. <laughs> In terms of her her thinking, I mean the thing that's so radical about about her school is the departure from materialism, right? Is 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 questioning not only femininity and masculinity as constructs, because because second wave feminists had done that for a long time before, but also questioning the male female binary full stop. I mean, what she does, which is sort of reasonable, is she points out the fact that people who are intersex 
are difficult to categorize and that historically intersex people have been treated in kind of culturally contingent ways, which does suggest that there is some space for flexibility in thinking about male and female as entirely concrete categories, which is a fair point. The problem is that intersex people are extremely unusual and we ought to be able to concede that yes, maybe there's a little bit of kind of slippage between male and female, but there there are only two kinds of chromosomes. And if we're looking at sort of two bell curves of, of physical features, there are two very, very, very obvious hillocks, right? Yes, but she she's basically arguing that biological reality does not exist. Is that is am I am I is that a, a caricature of what she's saying? Because she's certainly saying that in our understanding of men and women, we should have there is no relevance whatever to the shape and nature of their bodies, or no salient aspect of our evolutionary nature that still should be in any way informative of our understanding of human sexuality. Is that, is that, am I exaggerating? Because to me, that sounds utterly absurd. But mm. tell me why people don't find that absurd. I mean, she is, she is certainly very hostile to any suggestion of a kind of evolutionary evolutionary influence over our modern behavior. But that's not unique to Judith Butler. I mean, that was true of, that's very, as a very mainstream view within feminism to be hostile to evolutionary psychology in particular. To, and the idea that, that our, that evolution would have affected us above the neck. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> how do they I mean I'm not going to get you to defend Judith Butler entirely because we'll get on to this but I, so you're you're coming into the world with the notion that Butler has propagated that essentially men and women is a completely arbitrary distinction created by a patriarchal system of oppression uh, the goal is to end any sexual binary whatsoever right Mm -hmm. What space is there for the simple reproductive fact that you need a sperm and an egg to make another human being? Is there, does that come into this at all? It's a very good question. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that only a small minority of gender studies professors have children. Right. I actually studied the th the thing that I was interested in for my dissertation. Both of my dissertations was was uh, was motherhood and obstetrics, and that was I did my I almost did a PhD on the history of the cesarean section. I'm really glad I didn't in retrospect, but that that was that was one course I could have taken, and it was considered widely considered among students and 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 some academics to be weird and niche that I would be interested in labor and and. Childbirth, yeah, and also breastfeeding. I did a, I did some research on wet nursing in colonial India, and yeah, and it was, and it was, it was, it was described on several occasions as. And whereas, of course, you know, the Judith Butler emphasis on. I mean, so I think what Judith Butler would say, just to, not to defend her, but to, is I don't think that she thinks that it's possible to completely erase gender difference. I think that what she She's actually very defeatist on that front in that she thinks that power is just so sort of deeply embedded in this system that you can never really get away from it. What she suggests doing is playing with gender, pointing out its, its contradictions, its absurdities through things like clothing, drag, you know, 
whatever you want, which has obviously inspired a whole generation of students to go to a fancy dress party. <laughs> you know, it's very, it's very exciting. <laughs> You're being I know. I just seminars. what she's contributed that David Bowie didn't at some point. Well, yeah, it's or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or why our playing with gender, which we have done throughout our human history, is somehow some radically new idea of subverting biological reality. Mm. There's but, a fabulous essay by Martha Nussbaum yes. on exactly this topic, the yeah, the professor of parody. I read it I read it like a like a, a dying man finding an oasis in the desert when I was eating the Am I, am I, I right that, essay. that was written in the New Republic or am I am I uh, Oh I can't remember. I think Leon Mann have commissioned he certainly Please. commissioned some great pieces for Martha Nussbaum over the years. Mm. She writes beautifully. She does write beautifully. She's she's a remarkable person, actually, in many many ways. So here you are, as a young woman, you've 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 kind of been saturated in butlerism, as it were, because everyone has to be. There's no when you go and study women's studies, you don't have a course on estrogen or testosterone or or (laughs) the reality of biological sex or anything to do. With actual reality, in, in, in this biological reality. The, the best way that you can get around that strategically is to, is to study history because you're not obliged. So I did a dissertation, for instance, on caesarean sections in the 18th century and no one expects you if you're writing about 18th century people to sort of go along with the 21st century nonsense. So you can, you can write about men and women without having to qualify anything only if you write about them in the past. <laughs> it's my experience of academia. So at the time, you were interested but sceptical or you weren't resisting this all the way through. You were just going along to get along. Then you end up, because presumably you work in a rape crisis center because you care about this issue and, and you, you, were, you thought of yourself as a committed feminist. So tell me about that experience at the rape crisis center and tell me how it, it impacted your understanding of sex and gender in a way that troubled or under, undermined some of the things that you've been taught at Oxford? So I I was already quite early on at university starting to be sceptical of of the of trans activism specifically because this was back in this is back in the time in the UK when really no one was talking publicly about this. I mean it, it's now much more possible in the UK to be sceptical of trans activism. Why was transactivism part of your gender studies course? Oh, it suffuses everything because it's all about, you know, radically questioning the whole and and ditto my anthropology course. It was all about undermining the 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 idea of biological difference. And also because it was just so present within student politics. So I, for instance, had Julie Bindle, the British feminist, radical feminist, was invited to my university and then ended up being being no platforms because this was at the period where she was pretty much the only person who was talking about this stuff publicly and was really suffering for it. And I emailed her and said, I, I think it's dreadful that you've been no platformed and we ended up having coffee and I've, I've been friendly with her ever since. So I was quietly sceptical of all of this stuff, but wouldn't write or say so publicly. And then I suppose the what ended up happening when I was in rape crisis was I began to be more sceptical of more things. Which I, I, I think anecdotally does happen quite a lot to progressives, what looks sort of lax progressives, that you find one thing that doesn't quite stack and then it becomes a domino effect. And Well, that's true of any belief system. I think so. It's true of Scientology. It's true of religious faith. Little yeah. things 
add up uh, bit by bit to make you question mm. more. So, but let me, maybe this is a better way to ask this. What do you think the liberationists, let me call them that mm-hmm. for the sake of better word, what do you think they got wrong? What basically did they get most wrong in your view? They underestimated the importance of sexual asymmetry. Sexual asymmetry. Yeah. So in the physical sense, the fact that women are the ones who get pregnant. I know this is, you know, this is radical in some courses, but we all know it's true. Women are the ones who get pregnant. Women are smaller than men, have significantly lower upper body strength than men, you know, because of things like the hormonal birth control being something that women take. They are the ones who suffer the side effects of taking birth control, all all these kind of physical things. And then also more controversially, the psychological differences between the sexes, which are not absolute. There are all sorts of outliers, but they are quite striking. And there are, and there's copious evidence to suggest that there are important, important psychological dimensions on which men and women differ on average. So what you're saying is that, in fact, in reality, the binary is evident, evidentially <laughs> proven. In other words, that you can't look at the world. And But why is this binary not designed entirely by structural forces to oppress one sex and elevate the other? What is it that 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 is not a part of oppression so that's the that's the that's the counter argument isn't it that actually this is all all of these differences are socialized things could be different and actually the project is to make them different which is why there's always been so much emphasis on things like childhood socialization and advertising and and, and these kind of kind of cultural products which are supposed to be leading us towards these binary roles there clearly is a bit of truth to that and there is we do see cultural variation which suggests that to some extent these things can be inscribed differently on us. But we don't see that much cultural variation, right? That we never, I, there is no culture that I've ever come across, nor that any of the experts I've read have ever come across, in which women seek out casual sex more than men do, for instance. <laughs> And you might say that this is partly to do with the, the, the physical differences, the fact that women are physically more vulnerable to violence probably would disincentivize being alone with a stranger. But I just think if you're, you know, if you're flipping the coin a thousand times and it's coming up heads every single time, <laughs> and moreover, if there's a very compelling reason for why it would in terms of evolutionary, the evolutionary explanation of why we would have different reproductive roles, you know, we are our reproductive roles are crucially distinct. Well, Women are the ones the, who the obvious, the obvious thing is that one sexual encounter for the man is a, a great orgasm, if you're lucky. The other is potentially nine months of a physical process, <laughs> pregnancy, and then labor, and then ownership of a child indefinitely. Yeah. Obviously, the stakes involved are dramatically different for each individual partner, historically anyway. Now, they would argue that the pill has, pill and abortion has removed this, and therefore we have this fantastic opportunity to abolish any such extra burden that women might have. How would you mm-hmm. counter that? So I'd say firstly that our minds haven't caught up with that reality. Right. We we spend 95% of our species history as hunter-gatherers, you know, in 200,000 years of 
Homo sapiens existing, the pill is a blip, right? We are we are nowhere near capable of sort of catching up in that short period in terms of how our minds evolved for, for sexual reproduction. So, you know, when when women have sex in particular, you know, we are our 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 monkey brains, our lizard brains, whatever, are primed to expect the risk of pregnancy. Which therefore means that we are primed to to one to want to bond with partners, two to feel intense sexual revulsion, un, unwanted sex, you know, all of these phenomena that we see. And that women often do talk about in colloquial terms, but not necessarily in thinking about it in evolutionary terms. Why do they have to be primed big. evolutionarily? Why couldn't let's say the 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 the, the butler rights are correct and that everything is de novo from the minute you're born. We can reshape people's psyches dramatically. The pill is here, so it's not a disaster. So you tell yourself, it's okay because I can just get rid of the child, or it's okay because I'm taking these pills that give me no consequence. In the same way that, for example, sexual promiscuity or sexual whatever you want to call it, I wish they were a slightly more neutral term than that, is obviously made much more bearable and tolerable because of antibiotics, because mm. because also people aren't destined to die from diseases they contract. Or, for example, the extraordinary toll of childbirth on women for the vast majority of human history, which creates another massive disincentive for for pregnancy because most, many women died. I mean, I think it's there's no other species like this in which women die in childbirth. Yeah. So is it, would it be just be possible... To rethink this, or I mean, what you're, what I'm trying to get at is that you are clearly rooting some of this in an understanding of evolutionary biology in the same way that we would understand other animal species. Mm. I mean, a comparison would be something like eating, right? I mean, clearly we are capable of choosing carefully what we eat. Clearly, it's extremely culturally dependent, etc. But there is an extent to which you can't resist hunger. And that your environment, you know, if you if you are presented with extremely appetizing dish, you know, you might be able to push it away if you have amazing self-control, but you're always going to be sort of in battle with your instincts. I think that that's probably the best way of understanding it. With the added complexity, of course, that sex is such a deeply emotional thing. And is it though? What I observe is, is it maybe more for, maybe more for women than for men. I mean, I think the thing is maybe that maybe 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 definitely isn't most of the time that emotional for men, and is almost always emotional for women. Is I think that I suspect that what's going on is that male sexuality is more flexible than women than female sexuality is. In the same way that actually we see more male variation in all sorts of other traits. That's that's strange. Most most mm. analysis I think that I've read was just that female sexuality is much more fluid, experimental, can be attracted to a million different things, psychologically, emotionally, temperamentally, as well as physically, that men are much more on-off switches. So what do you mean by that? So it's true that women are more flexible in terms of sexual orientation because a lot of like a really surprisingly high proportion of women are bisexual, right? That seems to be actually a very typical 
typical thing for women. And the second wave was we're right to talk about compulsory heterosexuality as a, a sense in which women are kind of funneled towards heterosexuality. What I mean in terms of male flexibility is more to do with the fact that men clearly are much more driven towards casual sex than women are. And it's, to some extent, it depends on individuals, but also men are clearly capable of of, of orientating themselves differently, of being monogamous, of being interested in in marriage and stability and permanence. And I think that that it, it is partly to do with individuals. It is partly to do with context. It's partly to do with, with cultural incentives. And what I think has happened post-sexual revolution is that the incentive structure now in place pushes men much, much more towards the short-termist strategy because they are rewarded for that in a way that they wouldn't have been historically. And I think that comes with a cost to women because women in general don't prefer that strategy. Well, evolutionarily speaking, of course, there is an argument that for the species as a whole, for the common good, to use a phrase, <laughs> for the species as common good, that in fact it's, it's optimal for, male, for men to be conflicted in this way. In other words, mm. it's good for a man, for his offspring, and for the viability of his offspring, that he sticks around with a partner and ensures the stable and successful rearing of the child, which will mm -hmm. help propagate his genes in a, in a way. However, mm. it's also true that the more women he inseminates, the, the greater his genes will spread in the population. So the ideal for a male in terms of marshalling his interests is exactly what you would expect, that he has one primary relationship which he invests in and then he fucks around all the time. And Or alternatively, he chooses one strategy in, in one set of circumstances and another in another set, depending on which seems to be the most advantageous in that moment. And here's where we get the social structure coming in, right? Because how do you deter the male who is producing God knows how much sperm on an hourly basis, all of which have to at some point leave his body. How does he, uh, given those instincts that you're talking about, how do we encourage him to, to save all of that, his whole life, for one woman? You tell me. I mean, we used to do it by mm. huge amounts of stigma. Mm -hmm. We did it by criminalizing adultery in some respects. We did it by all sorts of social arrangements that were deeply stigmatizing of the illegitimate, of those who were born mm -hmm. out of wedlock. We also stigmatized the women who were often pregnant, but we also regarded the man as this, as a, as a cad. How do you restore that in any way? This is, this is, this is my trouble with your book, mm -hmm. it, 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 it's, it's, just wish, it's just wishful thinking. How do you accurately tell men, persuade men that this is what they really ought to and need to do? It's really difficult. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 if we look at the whole sweep of human history up until the pill arrived 60 years ago, there are basically two models that have proved to be durable with a few unusual anthropological exceptions. One is a polygonous model where you have high status men taking multiple wives and generally also having sexual access to their social inferiors kind of unquestioned and ending up with lower status men having no wives. The other model is the monogamous marriage model. 
which prevailed in the West until recently. And and that only accounts for about 20% of cultures on the anthropological record. So it is, it's an unusual model. It's also a very, very successful one in the sense that cultures that have adopted it have come to to dominate the world, which is which is the which is the answer to what anthropologists have called the puzzle of monogamous marriage. Why would monogamy spread? Because it doesn't favour the interests of high status men. What high status men want to do is take on as many wives as they possibly can, and you know, shag as widely as they can. And a monogamous marriage system prevents them from doing that. The answer to that puzzle is that monogamous marriage systems, while constraining those men in a way they don't like, is also very good for society as a whole. It reduces crime rates because you don't have this unhappy proportion of unmarried men. It reduces domestic violence and child abuse rates because you don't have these very fractious households composed of co-wives and and lots of stepchildren. And it also encourages wealthy men to invest in things other than new wives, you know, investing in businesses and employees and so on. So it's good for society and and therefore the monogamous societies have been able to spread themselves overseas through, you know, survive and also through things like colonialism has have, have spread the monogamous marriage system. And we and we have partially abandoned it, right? I mean, we haven't quite, you still can't, you know, bigamy is still illegal, but in the sense that there's now no, no stigma attached to premarital sex, people can in, in practice have multiple wives, even if we don't call it call it that and actually you see on 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 dating apps like tinder a drift back towards a polygamous system where you have the really attractive men getting loads of matches and the, and the less attractive men getting zero and then the, the attractive men are kind of encouraged to have multiple relationships on the go which is why that you know i i have a final chapter in the book where i make the case for monogamous marriage and i and i do concede the point that is often made by feminists who are opposed to marriage that marriage is oppressive to women in the sense that it radically restricts you. But the point I want to make is actually it's it's as as restri- as oppressive, if not more so to men, <laughs> right? That's kind of the point. The whole point of marriage is that you are you choose to limit your freedom through this legal bond and also just as importantly through the social bond, the fact that you stand up in front of everyone and you make this promise and you expect penalties for breaking your promise. And it does it, it does absolutely constrain and it's i mean i i think what we are discovering that it's not something i mean well some people do take it on very voluntarily it's an interesting fact that the richer you are the more likely you are to get married and the more likely you are to stay married so increasingly having a a, a durable marriage is a luxury good and i think it is there is there is definite hypocrisy in the fact that the most anti marriage arguments are often coming from that exact same strata of society who love getting married and love staying and love staying married because they recognize the the long term benefits to them and to their children but in a society where you're not required to do that and yeah that comes with all sorts of advantages in in the sense that you absolutely there was terrible social punishment visited and legal punishment sometimes visited on people who who strayed outside of, of of the conventions, sometimes not of their own choosing. You know, women impregnated through rape or, or whatever who would be ostracised by their communities. That's a, I, I, I completely agree that that is a terrible, terrible trade-off. The problem is that we're dealing with systems which all have trade-offs. Yeah, what you're saying really to men in that context is sort of a millite thing about lower and higher pleasures, what you were saying. Mm. In fact, you are evolutionarily programmed for both impulses. 
I can see mm-hmm. that. But you will be happier, actually, if you repress the lower desires and concentrate on the higher desire, which is marriage and family and relationship. But I, it is still true, nonetheless, that the sex drive itself, for men in particular, is a hugely powerful force. Basically, it feels to me like we're going back to Freud, right? We, we're, going, we're going back to you attempting to reconstruct civilization and its discontents for its own good because you think this actually will lead to men being happier, at least most men being happy. Mm-hmm. If you are a low-status man, let's say, let's say you're not that good-looking or not earning that much money, this system, your old system actually is better, right? He, he probably won't get laid very often in the, in the sexual marketplace. In fact, he may be constantly humiliated. Whereas if he had one person, he has a better chance of finding that person. And secondly, sticking with them gives him prestige, gives him, I mean, that's the other part of it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That we bribe men with the sense of honor, with the public recognition of their fatherhood, of their role in this way that we want to support. Yeah. And we also, I mean, you know, a system where you can't have access to sex, at least not, not licit sex, unless you have a job, set up a house, you know, achieve all of these adult things is obviously extremely motivating to men. The problem now is kind of a coordination problem, right? Because... I think it does serve the interests of the, not even low-status men, just, just anyone who isn't a kind of Hugh Hefner stud is, is, is probably better served by the old system in terms of the likelihood of finding a good match. I've heard, I've heard slightly tongue-in-cheek, I've heard the monogamous marriage system described as sexual socialism in the sense that it, 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 it prevents that kind of harem behaviour of the really high status men, which is bad for the women too, right? Like these women don't want to end up in harems, particularly when, as often happens with, on things like, on apps like Tinder, they don't even know they're in a harem. You know, they're being led on deceptively by men who really aren't interested in settling down, but aren't, aren't honest about that either. So, I mean, my argument is the only, is the only people in this system who are really benefiting are the, are the really high status men, at least the ones who are, who want to take advantage of all, you know, all the pleasures offered by, by sexual liberation. If we are being honest about the downsides for men, you've, we've talked about some upsides for men in the old system. Mm. The downside is that you will not have as much sexual pleasure or excitement in your life than you might otherwise have had. There are those that the variety of sexual experience does seem to be pretty deeply ingrained yeah. in the male of the species. Giving that up is a sacrifice. Yeah. Sexual variety, crucially. I mean, it's it's worth remembering that married people on average have more sex than unmarried people. So in terms of, you know, amount of sex you will have in your life, actually marriage is quite a good, quite a good option. But yes, in terms of having variety of partners and, and other kinds of like sexual adventure. Yeah. It's interesting with the, so psychologists call this trait sociosexuality. But I'm grateful that you understand that by, but that means that, and, and women, women, 
again, you're going to have to tell me about this because I have literally, I'm the least qualified person almost on the planet to talk about this. For women, a long-running, emotionally connected sex life with one other human being can be quite wonderful. It's generally the goal. It's generally yeah. the goal. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a real clash of interest there. So that so, so, so psychologists call this trait sociosexuality. You're, it's not quite the same as sex drive. So you could be high in sex drive and low in sociosexuality. And obviously it varies across your life cycle and everything. But sociosexuality is basically your desire for sexual variety. How many people you want to have sex with, how quickly you want to jump into bed with someone, how likely you are to be interested in experimenting sexually and so on. And there are the male bell curve and the female bell curve are a bit different with overlap. No one should be surprised to hear this, but, you know, it has to be said. No. What, what's kind of interesting about it is that the, the tail, that the male tail is really long. So you, end, so, you, so you end up with, at the very extreme end of sociosexuality, it's like 100% men there. And it, it goes, you know, quite far, right? There are some men who really are driven in their lives for, like their sexual appetite is almost insatiable. And then at the other end, you have people, most of, most of whom are women, who really would prefer only to have a mon one monogamous relationship forever. This is now called demisexuality. Oh, <laughs> that's what they're calling it now. In the rainbow pantheon, yeah. Because, because, uh, because women, because of this problem that, I, that I'm, I think I've identified, that women don't feel confident in just asserting sort of typical female preference. So it has to be dressed up as an identity category, which is where you get things like demisexual, which just means you prefer to have sex with someone with whom you're emotionally invested. Yes, I remember when, I can't remember who it was, some some young woman who with, with, without much other claim to fame suddenly came out. Oh, Demi Lovato, I think her name was, said she was now <laughs> demisexual. And when asked what that is, yes. it's, she really wants to be in a relationship with one other person, have sex only with that person, to which one obviously was all well, that used to be called being a woman. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but are you not downplaying women's sexual appetites, women's desire for sexual variety? It's tempered, but it's not non-existent. And yeah. are you not actually describing women in this rather Victorian way that doesn't feel very liberated to me? So I completely concede that there's variation, and there are some. There are definitely some women who are who are pretty high at the sociosexual scale. I did a a a, a debate with Ayla, who's an OnlyFans star and Twitter hmm. Twitter star, who I think is very authentically high in sociosexuality. Right? She's I I believe her. She you know, is I don't horny AF, <laughs> and not just horny, but also like delighted by sexual experimentation and new partners and you know whatever and is able in in, in the, the material conditions that we now have with the pill and with antibiotics and all of these things she can she can do that the problem is with assuming that all women are like Ayla right and the fact that when we're designing so obviously when we're designing laws we have to be designing laws for everyone that's the point of laws everyone has to obey them it's also kind of true with some with some flexibility when it comes to norms you know if you have a norm that you should have sex on a first date which we increasingly do most women are not going to prefer that norm even if some do and most men are going to prefer that norm 
And so I think that there is a, to some extent, a zero sum issue here. Yes, there is issue here. I'm yeah. glad you're being honest about it. There's so many people talk about this as if there's some sort of golden solution to this. The fact is that there no. isn't. For some reason, our species has been blessed by our divinity with this deep incompatibility between men and women, which we have to somehow <laughs> figure out in order to actually reproduce. I think that's a feminist project. How are men and women supposed to get along? But let me say this then. So we have the pill, we have antibiotics, we have women with economic power, with autonomy, all of which I assume you are glad of mm -hmm. that we don't want to see women having to make choices for fear of dying in childbirth, for fear of terrible diseases. So, but those things also enable inevitably a much greater level of sexual adventurism because with, with, with fewer, many fewer risks. So one option is to maybe in practice sustain a norm of monogamous marriage and for the frustrated men, allow them to have pornography, virtual enactments of sex in ways that can help siphon off this extra energy in ways that do not actually harm any other females that you do not accept insofar as they are conducting a relationship with Ayla on OnlyFans. Tell me, why is that not actually? I mean, we, we look at society today and you can see a huge increase since the pill in this kind of access to porn and interest in pornography. Isn't that actually a way in which the male of the species manages to balance his own sexual needs with his social obligations? I think the problem with relying on porn as a, as a, as a means of siphoning off excess sexual energy is that I don't think the, the model of, I write about in the book as a metaphor, there's this episode of The Simpsons where Homer is dealing with anger problems but goes to some sort of therapist where he like represses his anger. But every time he does so, he ends up with this like boil on his neck and eventually his neck is just covered in boils and he's on the brink of, on the brink of collapse. And then he ends up being so provoked that he sort of has this like terrible rage and all of the, all of, all of his energies is, and he's later told by the doctor, oh, thank goodness you did, because otherwise you would have expired from all of your oppressed anger. So that, that's kind of the model that we have, I think, of sexuality. And I, I think it's a version of Freud. And there is some truth to it, but the problem is that it's not quite as simple as that. There is a there is a feedback mechanism as well. And what porn does in particular is it shapes sexual appetites and it's and it shapes them according to the algorithm, right? Which actually the individual doesn't have a lot of control over and may not be aware of what's being done to them. And so there are people who can use porn and it doesn't seem to have a profound effect on them. There are many more people, I'd say, for whom it does have an effect. And some people are extremely susceptible, most of them men, to compulsive porn use, which leads them down some very grim avenues. Like what? Towards, well, so either towards more and more bizarre content. I mean, things, the, 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 so what? the internet. So what? in that it becomes then possible to have a relationship with a real person. 
And I mean, for some men, how, maybe how, they can how, never Tell have. me how that works. So one is just because of erectile dysfunction, just the fact that if you, it's called death grip syndrome, colloquially. <laughs> when you, 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 either you masturbate so much or you use porn so much in a, in a psychological sense that you can't be aroused by a real person anymore. You can't have a normal That's got to be pretty rare. Well, no, because erectile dysfunction rates have gone up astonishingly in the last 20 years among men. It's now, I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but it's like, a, I think it's about a third now of men under 40 who, who have erectile dysfunction, which, which was previously unheard of. And there are, you know, there are very that that might be exactly up too often. It could, so some people say that it's to do with estrogens in the environment or to do with obesity, but the fact that it's happened at exactly the same time as online porn arriving suggests to me that that must be playing a role. And anecdotally, men often talk about the fact that if they quit porn, their erectile dysfunction goes away. The other issue is to do with getting sucked into more and more extreme content, which ends up eventually at child sexual abuse images, because that's the most extreme content there is, right? And and clinical psychologists who, who, who are treating men convicted of possession of these images are increasingly saying that what they used to be seeing were sort of true paedophiles, you know, men who had always been interested in, in children, whereas what they're seeing increasingly are men who just have a really, really problematic relationship with porn which led to them being so deadened to any, you know, vanilla sexual content that they have to seek out more and more bizarre, shocking, extreme content, which eventually leads them into the worst places of the internet. So there's a, there's a, there's a social cost there in terms of obviously the children who are abused in the creation of those images. But I think there's also a, I mean, maybe you might say that there are some men who are so hopeless, they have absolutely no chance of ever having a relationship with anyone that all they can hope for is living in their mum's basement with porn. I think that's not true for most men, though. I think that there's a there's a very large grey area of men who actually could, in another set of circumstances, have fulfilling romantic sexual relationships and have families and have all the things that, that for the vast majority of people are the key sources of meaning in, in life. But porn tugs them away from that because it's easier it's easier to use porn than to go out and actually find a partner. And for, you're, for many so of them. porn is like fast food, yeah. whereas a, a stable relationship is is like food to table, local, organic. <laughs> <laughs> Going out and hunting your own food. <laughs> yeah. But what I'm yeah. what's interesting in this also is is that is the porn increases by being exposed to it increases the need for it. In other words, there is an yeah. addictive quality to this. I would say by design, because I think that the platforms are extremely well engineered to arouse the human animal as efficiently as possible, right? That's what it's for. And the ways in which, you know, you go onto these sites and you're immediately met with extremely, like, stimulating images, sounds, the fact that you get videos suggested to you, which will kind of embed certain interests and responses. Well, let's think about things that no one would ever have imagined on their own that are, are, are presented. Yeah, it's funny. When I was a kid, this is a perfectly random anecdote here, but there was no porn. I mean, certainly not gay porn. <laughs> the idea that I would find any beautiful men displayed for my satisfaction was absurd. So I drew them and drew these weird Tom of Finland type caricatures of men in ways that I probably didn't understand at the time. But let me, I, in a way that was my only sexual outlook for the first 10 years of my 
being a sexual being. That, so what I'm saying is that sometimes the suppression, this is what Freud would say, the complete suppression of this ability of men to just jack off, to be fantasize about a million different things is, is also can be damaging. It, 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 it places way too much pressure on one woman to satisfy every possible need that a man might have. And repression can lead to other bad things. Obviously, anger, frustration, acting out, all sorts of, of, of stuff like that. I'm thinking now, let's take a very specific case of a middle-aged married man, let's say he's in his mid-40s, who has sex with his wife, maybe if he's lucky, every other week or so. But most nights before he goes to bed, goes downstairs to the basement, jacks off, to some, it takes him about 10 minutes and goes back to bed. A sort of Randy Marsh situation from South Park. What's wrong? Isn't that just simply a way of coping? Isn't that actually simply a way in which a modern world can make a monogamous marriage less stressful and oppressive for a man? Well, I'd say, first of all, that porn is a very, very long way from being fair trade. So it's probably comparable to, I don't know, taking cocaine to take the edge off with the full knowledge of how many people are murdered per gram of cocaine bought in the West, right? There is, you know, untold horror involved in the production of porn and it's impossible to know looking at a video. Oh, so no, but now you're changing the goal. You're switching. You're switching the argument here, Louise, though. Oh, are we talking about, are we talking about... I'm talking about what's... what's... Artificial porn, hypothetically. No, I... Or you're just thinking about we, the man. We've been talking about porn as how it affects the brain of the person consuming it, not as part of the as as, as an an element in society which can have unintended and bad consequences for everybody. Just talking okay. about it's it, worth air, it's worth airing though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we can talk about that in yeah. a second. But I don't but want to get you off on, 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 on Randy. I want you to have pity, um. pity, some empathy <laughs> for the middle-aged man who is no longer attracted to his wife just isn't because most men are not attracted to the same woman 10, 15, 20 years down the line. Certainly most men that I've ever spoken to candidly about these things, straight or gay, say the same thing. Isn't incorporating some porn fantasy into your life a perfectly harmless activity that can actually, I mean, maybe you can imagine things as you're having sex with your wife that will help you have sexual attraction or sexual arousal. So I say the problem, I mean, so one, I would say that his wife is very, very likely to be terribly wounded by this if she, if she knew about it. She knows about it. They all, they must. Okay, hypothetically, she knows and she's fine. I mean, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever come across a woman who was authentically fine with, most women do feel it to be adjacent to cheating, even if it's not. Strictly cheating. But it, so they, they it, it, it's like Jesus' admonition about adultery. You can't even, you can't even commit it in your heart. You're still damned. Is it, isn't it unreasonable for women to expect men after 10, 15, 20 years, or even after a few years, to have all their sexual needs fulfilled by this one person without some either kind of stimulation to keep them sexually alive. And it has to be porn. I mean, men have been what else dealing with be? this problem for hundreds of thousands of years, their imaginations. 
Why do we need this sophisticated, you know, global industry funneling sexual fantasies into our... Okay, let's go back to me office. drawing my own <laughs> uh, idealized <laughs> human. Which people have always done, of course. I mean, the, the response that I get sometimes from this is, is people to say, well, you know, what are you going to do, ban like sexy murals in Pompeii, you know, everyone is, all, people have always been cooking up erotic fiction imagery of any kind, which is of course true. And I, I have no intention of going around kind of with my, my bucket of white paint. But the thing that troubles me is the, is the, the way that this interacts with capitalism and the way that this is a very small number of of tech engineers, of owners of these platforms who have this extraordinary power to shape human sexuality worldwide and that we don't even really know that they're doing it to us. You know, the fact that they are embedding certain certain preferences. One example is the trend for choking. Or strang- you should, it's really strangulation because cho- you choke on food, you know, strangulation is done externally, but it's, it's normally called choking, which a few decades ago was just unheard of. Really, and I mean, it was it was, and in and in straight relationships, that it was it was a niche within the BDSM community, which was a, which was a niche in itself. Whereas now, you know, some surveys find that half of women aged eighteen to twenty four have been choked by their partners, sometimes consensually, sometimes not. Well, now let's get let's because that's very interesting. I mean, I'm going to jump on that particular moment. Because you have interesting things to say about consent. So let's take an example of a woman who's totally into a fantasy of being grabbed, held down, choked, and fucked. Are you saying that she's not really capable of consenting to that freely? That there is something about that that is that escapes the sanction that would grant it with the word consent? She might be able to legally consent to it. I mean, it does depend a bit on... Strangulation is a bit of a difficult one because most lay people don't realise how risky it is. In fact, we're only just recently discovering with research on the brain quite how... quite what a bad idea it is to to sort of apply pressure to the neck. So there is an argument to say that actually the vast majority of people don't... are not capable of getting truly conformed, informed consent to strangulation, but let, we could set that aside and say just a, you know aggressive sex, you know, which doesn't produce any injury. I think she can legally consent to it, yeah. The problem is that there's a lot of space, I think, between legal consent, the legal consent threshold, which is a very low bar, and good sex. Isn't violation in some way part of the thrill of sex? Don't women... At some point, in some women, not all women, some women actually really only get their rocks off by being treated this way sexually. And at the end of which, we can be perfectly loving, tender relationship. But this is, and there is something, isn't there not, about sex, which, which is about violation, intrinsically about violation. I mean, one thing that in other words, that, that, that some element of force, coercion, is kind of inevitable in any sexual encounter. So it is true that a lot of women are, are, are into being submissive 
in, in one way or another. I think evolutionarily, what's probably going on there from having spoken to some experts on this is that one of the things that women really look for in a in a mate is signs of commitment. If you read women's erotic fiction, you know, you never ever have a circumstance where a woman is trying to persuade a reluctant man. You know, it's always the 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 male the romantic hero is always obsessively in love with the heroine and will do anything to get her, including sometimes commit violence to have her enforce himself on her and so on. So I think that, that that desire for sort of grand displays of commitment is probably baked in. The question is how it ends up being expressed, right? Women have not always been turned on by choking. This has not been, you know, this is this is a this is a sexual fashion that has arisen quite suddenly. But how do we know that? I mean, how do we really know? what people were doing in sex in the 19th or 18th centuries. We, I mean, how do we know? We can't talk to people in the 19th and 18th centuries, but we can talk to, you know, I've spoken to women, in middle, elderly and middle-aged women, who are very, very surprised to hear that this is now considered normal among Zoomers and millennials. So I think that just within our lifetimes, we've seen quite rapid changes in, in sexual fashions because a lot of this is just a kind of a meme thing this is all networked right and so people are influencing each other and and this is one of the reasons why you can't think about consent just in isolation so i think that there is a, a sort of latent thing to do with submission which varies between women but is definitely there for many of them i think the problem with bdsm as a kind of avenue for that instinct and things like very, very violent sex, including things like joking, is that it affects the sexual culture when that is considered to be a perfectly neutral ideal, right? And you end up with, yes, maybe there are women who who truly consent to this. I mean, it, it's worth remembering how often mental illness is at play here. Not always. I don't want to say always. But we know that if a woman is cutting herself that's very likely to be to do with mental illness. And yet we say that if she asks her partner to cut her or to hit her or whatever it is, that that changes things completely. I, I, don't, I don't consider that to be plausible. I think there are definitely cases which are actually to do with sort of a desire for self-harm were to, transposed onto the partner. Let's take that, that, that almost certainly must happen some of the time. Yeah. It's all a question of how often it happens, how widespread mm -hmm. that is. Mm -hmm. But presumably you... you 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 would understand that a person who there are cases in which a woman would freely consent yeah. to being held down and treated like a like a dirty whore just yeah yeah, yeah. Of, I, I can see that there are completely authentic what about language like that i mean the use of dirty language which is actually part of what sex can be about for some in other words a way in which humans are actually in this particular moment Degenerating, let's put it that way, let's be, put it hard. <laughs> degenerating into their animal selves, that part of what sex does is in a highly constrained and constricted social setting that human beings live in. It's one of the few areas left in which people can really act out, in which they can really fantasize, in which they can really have adventures in a way that feels that something is at risk. The tamer that our civilized life is the wilder our sex may be. Has, 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 
how, how isn't that also a factor in 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 adventurous BDSM kind of sex? So I do wonder if part of the reason that BDSM has become very good among straight people is because we live such gender neutral lives. Huh. So much more so than our ancestors did. And that we live much, we don't live the kind of homosocial lives that most people used to. We don't have clearly demarcated economic and domestic roles. And we mix freely with the opposite sex at work and so on. And, you know, and, and, and obviously in political terms, the very existence of femininity and masculinity and even maleness and femaleness are now up for debate. I do, it is interesting to me that, you know, what BDSM is most of the time is an exaggeration of masculinity and femininity, you know, women being more ostentatiously submissive and men being more ostentatiously dominant. And I do wonder whether people are to some extent displacing what I think are healthier masculine and feminine roles outside of the bedroom and kind of they are finding their expression in the bedroom. On the other hand, you could say that it's a good thing that men and women in public life, in job places, in workplaces, in in those kind of contexts are less rigidly gendered and there is more of a common culture. And it's a very healthy development that is a way to counteract that psychological repression. A man will fuck a woman's brains out, to use an expression, in a way that will give him some leeway and her also some, some access to the, the deep primordial male-female Relationship. And one thing I, I think that I find kind of fascinating is, and as, as as a gay man, it's it's particularly interesting because we can experience sex both ways, as penetrator and penetrated, in a way that no heterosexual or lesbian can, for that matter. Mm -hmm. That for a man to let me put it this way, <laughs> God, I get in trouble by saying this, but for a man to <laughs> orgasm usually to achieve what is the natural goal of the sex act. He has to enter another human being's body quite deeply, repeatedly, and violently for it to happen. In other words, sex is intrinsically violent. There's no way around it. If violence means the application of force of one body to another, and more than that, it's actually inside another person's body, which makes it an extraordinarily invasive act of violence. But violence is on a spectrum. Okay, can I give two concrete examples of why I think normalizing BDSM is a problem? Yes, go on. One is the fact that you do end up inevitably, when the sexual script is changed, Right. And when something like choking, particularly when we're talking about people have casual sex with people they hardly know. So there's no level really of trust or communication. And, and there's probably alcohol and drugs involved as well. Right. And when things like choking, slapping, spitting, all of this stuff, which is now just considered to be a normal part of of sex, you will do with, you will do with someone right from the get go. You are inevitably going to end up with a lot of people experiencing that kind of sex who didn't want to and who will be shocked and upset and this is something that 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 i i've heard a lot from young women who who are who are horrified to discover that this is now what they what they can come to expect from any kind of sexual relationship that it's like hyper pornified right so that's one one concrete problem the other is it's very difficult from the outside 
to tell the difference between a BDSM relationship and a, and a, and domestic violence, right? It, it all depends on what's going on in the minds of the two of the two people within the relationship, and they may not even have that much insight into what's going on in their minds because we know that victims of domestic violence often are, are really struggle to recognise that that's what's going on and will refuse to cooperate with police and will defend their abuser. And, you know, that's the, that's the classic response of anyone in a, in a violent relationship. And this becomes a very pertinent issue when you're dealing with legal cases, particularly where someone has died and whether they're not able to, to give their side of what happened. And I, I, I work on a, on a campaign group that looks at precisely this cases where women have been killed and their killers have said that they consented to the violence as part of rough sex and that they died accidentally, normally through choking, but not always, sometimes through other other, other forms of violence. Really extraordinarily extreme violence often. And often there is indications of existing domestic abuse or we're talking about women in prostitution who've been killed by punters or women who only just met, only just met these men, you know, a drunk girl picked up at a bus stop taken home and strangled to death and he and, and and this offender successfully argued that she had consented to be strangled and that it was a it was a mistake and he was only given three years in prison as a consequence for manslaughter so that is the kind of the reason that that is happening is because of the change in the culture the fact that journalists and police officers and judges and juries are all much more willing to believe narratives that defendants present that they would never previously have considered plausible. But it's now considered plausible by many people that women would seek out that kind of lethal violence, even with men that, that they don't that they don't know. And defendants are therefore using these using this defence tactic with increasing success. We did have a change in the law in the UK brought about by our campaign last year, which is supposed to make it more difficult to attempt this kind of defence, but it's a hard one to, to entirely prevent legally. And as I think a really good example of the fact that we can't just think about this in individual terms, you know, the thought experiment is always to do with the two people in a room, the two consenting adults. Why do you care? You know, leave them to it sort of thing. But the problem is that sex is networked and what you do is it's inherently relational, right? So whatever, whatever sexual preference you have is going to impact on your partner and any partners that they have down the line and is also going to, and therefore is going to influence the culture you make the deeply conservative and i mean that in a in a good way point that culture matters that culture will mm. shape the individual will will give them a sense of what they really want and need and and by giving them certain options will get them entranced by those options may actually want them to seek further options and so in other words it's a kind of dynamic thing uh, mm -hmm. And yet, and is far more complex, I think, than any of us can really reckon with. And yet, which is why any change needs to be considered very carefully. And yet, publicly, publicly, in Anglo America, let's say, the culture is super hostile to men, to their sexual aggression. That the that the Me Too movement, the regulation of spaces. In offices and public spaces, we are much, much, much more aware of the way in which power can be abused. And this is clearly, to my mind, overwhelmingly a good thing that, that the way in which men used to abuse 
positions of power in offices uh, or in their workplaces, which is, I mean, I never experienced, I've talked to my sister about this. I was just gobsmacking the way men have treated her in her life. It, it really is shocking to me, except it isn't shocking to me when I think about the way gay men interact with each other. It seems quite deeply male in a way, but deeply misaligned when it comes to women. So at the one on the one hand, you have a sort of private, porny resurgence in male valuation of male aggression and males. You also see, for example, in the public culture, the male body being a, a completely different thing than it was 30 years ago. You see hyper-masculine men everywhere. The super action movies, comic movies, every movie star now has biceps the size of, you know, what used to be a, a, a puny little man. And same in sports where everyone's juiced up. How much do you think have steroids actually affected this, especially we're talking about young men who are particularly becoming what we might call straight and gay, mostly straight, hooked on, hooked on masculinity? That's an interesting question. I've not had that one before. <laughs> Am I right? Though? I mean, you can see it. You can see what I'm getting at, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's kind of the counterpart to women getting fillers and stuff, isn't it? Yeah. I think that it's, it must have a lot to do with social media, right? Because the impression that someone like Instagram gives you is that your pool of intersexual competition is vastly larger and contains the most beautiful people in the world, right? Whereas normally your pool of intersexual competition is the people who live around you who are just as like pockmarked <laughs> and skinny and hideous as you are. So I, Stop I, I talking feel... about England that way. <laughs> so I'm sure that that must be, must be driving the kind of escalation of body modifications. Also just the fact that we have this technology that permits it, right? Yeah, I, I, I think to some extent that the, the cosmetic surgery, cosmetic intervention industry must be driven just by, just by innovation. As soon as something comes on the market, people are going to want to use it because everyone wants to be beautiful. And it starts with celebrities and then it kind of filters down. Um, there are also lots of examples of public women culturally, I think. I think of the song, the hit song, WAP, Wet yes. Ass Pussy. The lyrics of hip hop, all of which, the, the, the phenomenon known as twerking, in which women literally, publicly, in dancing all the time, will adopt a position that looks as if they're going to be gang raped from behind, or they're showing their ass as their major forward feature who's responsible for that surely I mean, it's not just men doing this right it's it's women also luxuriating in their sexual attractiveness as they always have of course yes although it's worth it's worth thinking like the WAP lyrics are if you read them closely right actually don't have a great deal to do with female desire it's all about it's all about the woman using her sexual attraction to get material benefit from men you know things like pay my tuition you know she wants a car i can't remember all the details but it's all orientated around around consumption which is why i was so bemused by all the think pieces at the time about how this was like women reclaiming their pleasure or whatever i thought no this is just you know <laughs> this is extremely trad but it's also within a an inner city culture in which fatherhood is barely is is let's say a part-time endeavor in which women have been abandoned essentially by men in which children abandoned by men and in which 
their ability to use this now as a way for financial or economic gain is the only use they have. What I find interesting about that is obviously it's bad for women, but how bad is it for men? I mean, one thing I think that sometimes feminists don't have sufficient empathy for the the male sex drive, the testosterone itself. Without, I mean, the, the trouble is that by denying that it exists or that if it does exist, that it has any salient impact upon behavior, removes any empathy from the the male tackling, mm-hmm. living in a, an embodied in a chemical and a hormone that is incredibly potent and driving you to, to fuck anything that moves. I mean, when I went on my testosterone therapy a lot many years ago the one thing i noticed was two or three days after the shot when testosterone was peaking just how i was a different person that that we don't have a way to both sympathize with men without damning them in ways that kind of get men to say well screw you what the hell am i supposed to do how do you reach men in this how do you how do you actually because i think the great let me let me put this the great weaknesses of your book <laughs> it, 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 what can, it doesn't have anything to propose except if you're a woman today don't get sucked into the culture of sexual adventurism understand that you're going to be happier and better with one good man That's that lesson has been taught to women and to daughters now every day of the week every country on earth and it hasn't changed anything so I don't you have to exact, enact some kind of repressive legal regime to provide the disincentives? And this is where your post-liberal position comes into force. What measures, what public me- – are you going to make divorce harder? Are you going to make abortion harder? Are you going to make contraception harder to get? Are you going to ban porn? What are the things that you would do to right what you think is the imbalance in our sexual – world? I mean, I start from encouraging in the book. I don't talk about policy in the book. I do talk about individual behavior and I, and I do encourage women to feel more confident in their ability to gatekeep because one of the things about female agreeability, this is one of these psychological factors on which men and women differ. Women are more agreeable than men are, right? In that they're, they're more willing on average to put other people first. And you know, I've witnessed among my friends and acquaintances the most astonishing degree of well, behaving like a chump, really. <laughs> Just allowing allowing men to have complete license and 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 actually, we, we, like, it would be possible to put up a boundary and say no. And and a lot of that is to do with the fact that the sex positive feminist thing is really high status and has been for some decades now. And the idea of being frigid, prudish, etc., is low status. And I think that that is a point where actually you can affect things by having open conversations and just saying these things. I mean, the, the most common response I've had to the book so far, it's been out in the UK for a few months and just out in the States, is I've been thinking that, I've been thinking this the whole time, thank you so much for saying it, has been a very, very common response, including from young women who, who I hope might feel more confident now in, in protecting their sexual boundaries. In terms of policy, I mean, I do, I do think that, I think no-fault divorce is a bad thing. For instance, we recently we just recently introduced it in the UK. I think that there are cases where divorce is the best option of bad options. 
And I think it needs to be available for those cases. But the whole premise of no-fault divorce is that it's not one of those cases, right? That there isn't abuse, that there isn't like serious problems within the relationship caused by one party. The whole premise is that actually people have just kind of drifted apart, fallen out of love, whatever. And I and I think that if marriage is to mean anything whatsoever, it can't be something that you can whimsically back out of if it's going to have any... Because my argument is that it has... It's, it's, it's most important function of marriage is to protect children. And it's not doing that. And, and, and the, you know, the real, we've been talking a lot about who's lost from the sexual revolution. Is it men or is it women? It's actually children are the main losers from the sexual revolution, right? And the, and the destruction of the institution of marriage. So I do absolutely support measures to strengthen and encourage marriage. I think in general, I would prefer carrots to sticks, but I'm, 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 I'm with the conservatives on that one. And also on porn, I absolutely think that the porn industry needs to be much more heavily regulated. I don't want to, I mean, if we could, I, I don't think it's feasible. I don't want to remove contraception from the from the available options for women. I mean, just on a personal level, I don't want to spend my entire life pregnant, <laughs> which would be, which would be the alternative, right? And that was true for many women, right? That you would you would you would either be pregnant or nursing right up until menopause and then you died, right? And and the physical burden of that was extraordinary. And similarly, you know, I don't think that I don't think abortion is a good thing. It's not something I would wish on my worst enemy, even even just just even stepping aside from the moral status of the unborn unborn child, I think that the it's not something that any woman enjoys, right? It's not a it's not a good thing to go through. It's also there are cases where almost everyone is agreed that it that it is the best of bad options, including in America, right? The modal view in America is actually that there are certain situations in which abortion is okay. And the earlier the better. Is, is is the common view. It's actually a remarkable degree of agreement on something. Well, it's a sign. It's so riven with controversy. It's a sign of some elements of extremism in the women's rights movement that it seeks to celebrate abortion. Yeah, which I think is absurd. And actually, I think is I think it's so rare for women to feel that way. I think feeling that it is a necessary tragedy is the correct position. I, I um, do too. And the position that is least likely to invite the kind of you know legal backlash that we've just seen. What does sexual pleasure add to a human life? I mean, this is, this is what, in some ways, what we're talking about in terms of the human goods, pleasures that we have in our world. There's listening to music, there's, there's the love you have for a pet, there is, there is a heart, there is, and there is fucking. And it seems to me that you're arguing contra Freud in a way that no, Losing this pleasure is actually a gain because you gain higher pleasures, higher virtues, and that therefore the circumspection around sex is is a good thing. How do you, I'm interested, I, I live in a subculture that is entirely male, a highly sexualized subculture that one, that is extraordinarily hard to counter because it is driven so powerfully by not only everything that that the powers straight male sexuality but removes any female constraints on it marriage obviously is a way the only the first time we've ever actually introduced into that subculture any incentive not to 
engage in this compulsively without attempting, I think, to morally stigmatize people who have sex, a lot of sex. Do you think that that's, do you think there's something wrong with gay men having sex so much <laughs> with so many people all the time? Or is it just simply a, a function of reality? The gay community doesn't have the sociosexuality gap, right? I mean, no, I think we don't have any women. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that I, the, 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 the problem to, to my mind with, with, with our current straight culture is it encourages women to imitate male sexuality and they don't want to. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, men don't want to imitate female sexuality either, but my feminist principle is that it's better to be sexually frustrated than to have unwanted sex. Yes. And if, and if one group of people, you know, <laughs> if, if, that, if that's the choice we're faced with, and I think we are, then I think it's better for, for straight men to be imitating female sexuality rather than the other way around. But that's not true for gay men, right? There's no, there's no gap to be bridged. There's no gap either with lesbians who have yeah. the opposite question, yeah. which is that... It's extraordinarily good proof <laughs> for the existence of differences in male and female you sexuality. Would think, you would think it's the most extraordinary proof of mm. non-cultural, entirely biological forces. The power of obviously not... They're not 100%, but they're immensely more powerful than, than, than many people acknowledge, I think. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and the, the biological difference is a huge challenge for humans. It, 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 there are other species that don't have these conflicts, right? But, but, but humans have been made. It's not like women are only horny once a month or, or, or there's like three months of the year in which the species reproduces nine months in which they're complete. It's not as if the human male only wants to ejaculate once a month or once a week. So we are talking about something really profoundly promiscuous about the human animal that is biologically strained, that can be channeled or chained. And you're basically arguing, very traditionally, that the Judeo-Christian ethic, one man, one woman, and the notion that sex itself is a kind now this is what I didn't get from your book. The sex itself is a is a is a false siren. It, it it's 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 dragging you to places where yes, the human being can go, but in which the human being is essentially a slave to the passions that 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 is that is that underlying where you are too. Because there, you don't really have a philosophical background or structure for the book. You're not saying I'm a Catholic, I'm I'm in favor of natural law, or I'm an evolutionary biologist, or it, it, you you you. I'm sort of, I'm sort of trying to figure out what that might be. You don't have to have one. I'm just like, but but is there something about sex that just troubles you? No, but I also think that sex as a means of strengthening intimate relationships is better than sex in isolation on a social level and also on an individual level. And I think that a society, I think, I agree with you that sexual repression causes pain. I also recognize that all societies demand sexual repression of some kind, right? The, you know, we do not permit all sorts of things that do not, you know, really, even within the consent framework, don't quite make sense. We don't, we don't permit necrophilia, for instance. We don't permit bestiality. We don't permit 
public nudity in most circumstances. You know, we have all sorts of legal limits. And and paedophilia remains one of the, the still the still the great taboos, despite some efforts by some sexual revolutionaries like Foucault and so on to destigmatize paedophilia. It is very, very strongly held still. And and even, you know, proximate kind of examples of not even not even true paedophilia, but say adults dressing up as children or whatever is very stigmatized. We do we do ask repression, right, of people. The question is at what level you set it and what you ask them to repress. And that's, and that's, where, that's where the negotiation takes place. What we're also finding, and we'll, 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 we'll close on this, the younger generations are having much less sex than the older generations. Is this a function of men terrified of Title IX prosecutions or of, 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 of the, that? Or is it a function of women finally saying, you know, I don't really feel like it. I don't want to do this. And I, I can walk away from it. Is it because it, you have many, many more opportunities to have sex, especially the apps, general, incredibly extraordinary, giving everyone essentially a bathhouse in their pocket. And yet we have the decline. Is that a sign of a social adjustment to a more humane? Or is it just a sign that our younger generation is even more fucked up than we thought they were? It's probably all of that to some extent. I think it's also the fact that people are just not having relationships in the same way. that They're not having long-term relationships in the way they used to. And they're not getting married or they're getting married much later. And actually, counter to all of the sort of jokes, married people have more sex than unmarried people. So I think what's going on, and certainly yeah, anecdotally, what seems to be going on with people of my acquaintance is that it's much more common now and probably historically unprecedented for women to only have casual sexual relationships sometimes to not to not to, to 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 have sex less frequently and when they do have sex to have it within casual relationships rather than long term and everyone to be everyone to be less coupled than they used to be and maybe that's to do with the the kind of withdrawing of both sexes from one another I mean, there are clearly women who feel like they have no, you know, a woman needs a man, et cetera. And similarly, there are men who are withdrawing to their, to their, the comforts of porn, which I think is a shame. <laughs> you know, I think that there are, there are some people for whom that's absolutely the right, the right thing. There have always been people, there've always been roles historically for people who didn't want to participate in the sexual marketplace, right? Nunneries served all sorts of purposes. And one of them was for women who didn't want to, who didn't want to have sexual relationships with men and, you know, power to them. I'm not saying that, that everyone should be obliged. I do think it's a shame though, that there does seem to be a, this, this withdrawal from healthy sexual relationships, which are, you know, for all of their complexities, for most people, the most important source of meaning in their lives. Louise, on that rather beautiful note, thank you for sharing this with us. It turns out, it seems to me, that you're arguing for just a, a social and cultural shift based upon what we've learned. It's not as if we haven't given sexual liberation its due, and we haven't learned from it. And I think the demystification of sex, the, the praise of, of sexual pleasure, which was, I think, under extraordinary condemnation for so long, largely under Christian pretensions can be ended without throwing everything out with it. It's not easy. And I think that's part of the problem that we live in a, a culture, right, where everybody wants to be told 
that they can do whatever they want because this and the other as opposed to you can do whatever you want because this is reality. Louise, it's, it's wonderful to hear, hear you and talk to you. Thank you for being so candid. And, and who knows? I, I'm a complete agnostic about the future of sex. I don't know. I think we can have many different futures at once. But I agree with you, essentially, that the collapse of meaningful relationships heterosexually for a lot of people is undermining the capacity for productive and healthy families, which is undermining the possibility of human happiness. And we can do better. On that wonderful note, we'll be happy to see you next week, I hope. By next week, my voice will be a little better, a little reminder that if you enjoyed this and you're glad you didn't get interrupted by ads or by me touting the benefits of my new mortgage, contribute and subscribe to keep this going. We're doing something, I hope, quite special here, talking to people as openly as we can about any subject under the sun with freedom and with your input. Look forward to your comments too. To the Dishcast, we will publish, of course, all the best and most salient criticisms mainly of me, but occasionally of our guests as well. On that note, have a lovely weekend, and I hope to see you with an actual voice next week.